For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at Psalm 139, verse 1 through 24, which I entitled, Where Can I Flee from God's Presence? It comes directly from Psalm 139. Now, I think you could really segment this entire psalm into three things that, that David communicates. And really, they center upon God's presence. First of all, God's presence is an inescapable fact. Secondly, God's presence represents a radical threat to our freedom. And thirdly, God's presence pushes us to the brink of flight or intimacy. So we want to talk, first of all, about God's presence being an inescapable fact. In verse 1... David says, O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. So David states the central thesis of Psalm 139 right here in verse 1. And he describes God almost like a doctor examining us or a friend who is asking us questions and trying to probe into our lives, trying to figure out what's on our minds. And the kind of knowledge that David is talking about here when he says, You know everything about me. This isn't some sort of empirical knowledge. It's not just factual knowledge. He's talking about the kind of relational knowledge that you experience when you're in intimate relationship with somebody else. He says in verse 2, You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You might know my thoughts even when I'm far away. So he says, Even when I rise in the morning... And all the way till I lay my head down to sleep, you are with me. And that's a wonderful thing to think about, that that God is so intimately involved in our lives that he is concerned about the mundane aspects of our lives. I think some of this is lost on us because we are so acclimated, we're so inured with just Christian concepts in America, and we carry all of this cultural baggage in America. And yet, it's interesting when you talk to people from other cultures. I have a guy who showed up to our home church a couple weeks ago, and he is originally from India. And what I really love talking to him about Christianity is you get sort of the raw, uncut, first reaction to Christianity. And one of the things that was very interesting was This concept of God being a personal God. I mean, he was scratching his head about this. In Eastern religion, God is pictured as this pantheistic God. So, in other words, ultimate reality is consistent of God. So this whole thought that we are somehow separate from God or that we can have a relationship with God is a foreign concept altogether. And I remember talking to him and he said, The thing that's very confusing about Christianity for me is that you guys talk about God as if he is your father. In my understanding of religion, God isn't like a father to a son at all. And it makes no sense at all. So one of the things that we see is that this concept of God being personal, interested in our lives, that is a uniquely Christian concept. Something that you don't see in other world religions. He says in 
or in other translations, the New English translation, it says in verse 2 that even from far away, you understand my motives. So it's not just that God understands or knows our thoughts. He even understands our motives. Can you imagine that? It's hard for us to even examine our own motives, let alone someone else's. You know, you take something like, for example, a great act of altruism. And if you break that down, inevitably you're going to find that baked in there are all types of selfish motives. And, you know, God, he's not confused about that at all. He can parse up our motives, he can parse up our thoughts, and he knows those things accurately. He says in verse 3, you see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. Now, just let that sink in. You know everything I do. Everything. On the one hand, it's amazing that God would concern himself with these mundane aspects of our lives. But on the other hand, it kind of freaks us out a little bit. He says in verse 4, you know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. So he knows the things that we say in secret from the cut downs that we, we make about our rivals or the encouragement that we give people behind the scenes. God knows everything that we have, everything that we say. He says in verse 5 and 6, you go before me and follow me. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. This sort of reminds me of how whenever I'm with my son, who's five years old, whenever we go to Target, either I'm walking ahead of him as he's sort of straggling behind, you know, getting distracted with all the things that he sees in the aisles, or I've got my hand firmly on his head, steering him past the toy aisle <laughs> to try to divert his attention and get through the store. And in the same way, God says that he, he guides us, that he leads us. And that's a wonderful thing. To think that God cares about us and that he gives us direction in our lives. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. You know, on the one hand, David is amazed that God concerns himself about even the smallest details of his life. You know, think about that. God concerns himself about whether you felt uh, sick today, whether you ate pastrami on rye. God knows all of those things. And yet, this intimate knowledge that God has of David also brings about this desire for flight. You know, even though God's presence is an inescapable fact, it also represents a radical threat in our lives. Think about what David says in verse 7 and 8. He says, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. No matter where I turn, I feel hemmed in by you, God. That's what he's saying. I can't escape your presence. Now, this word escape, it's very interesting because it's the same Hebrew word that shows up in Jonah 1 verse 2. You know that story where God comes to the prophet Jonah. He says, I want you to go and I want you to preach to the Ninevites to call them back to me. And what does Jonah do? He runs. He flees from God's presence. And in the same way, David is describing 
The kind of flight that we feel when we sense that people are getting too close to us, when people know too much about us and we feel vulnerable. He says in verse 9 and 10, he says, if I ride on the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. Again, in the New English translation, they smooth out this. Um, verse 9, he says, if I were to fly away on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the other side of the sea. From David's perspective in Israel, the dawn would rise in the east, and so he's saying, as far as I can run to the east, and then to the west would be the Mediterranean Sea. He's saying, it doesn't matter where I go, whether I run as far east as I can, or whether I sail as far west as I possibly can, you are there. I can't escape you. He says in verse 11 and 12, I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. From God's standpoint, whatever we do in darkness isn't hidden. To him, the darkness is the same as light because he knows everything. And so David is really wrestling with, I think, what we wrestle with a lot of times, where on the one hand, it's intriguing, it's amazing that God would know so much about us, that he would concern himself about our thoughts. And yet on the other hand, there is this sense that we feel exposed, where it threatens our freedom, our, our autonomy that we want to preserve. You know, when we think about God's presence representing a radical threat, his presence really threatens our freedom. In our culture today, freedom is the most important thing that you can have. It's something that society and institutions should give you. And one of the things that's very interesting is that philosophers have really differentiated the difference between negative liberty and positive liberty. Negative liberty means that you are free from something, whereas positive liberty describes being free for something. And so in our culture today, most people hold to this negative view of liberty that what I need is freedom without any sort of constraint, that I can do whatever I want without anyone telling me what to do. So all I need to do is I need to look inward to myself and my desires and my drives, and that should be the guide for how I should live my life. And yet... One of the things that's really difficult is that when you don't hold any sort of moral absolutes, one of the things that you're left with when you ask, what is freedom for, people in our culture don't have a recommendation because people are afraid that if they suggest something, then you're essentially impinging upon someone's freedom. Jean-Paul Sartre, in his 1947 lecture on existentialism, says, God is a costly hypothesis. So we'll do without it. However, if we are to have morality, a society, a law-abiding world, it's essential that certain values should be taken seriously. They must have a priori values. You know, a priori just means outside of one's existence. Absolute moral values. 
He says, it must be considered obligatory a priori to be honest, not to lie, not to beat one's wife, to bring up children, and so forth. The existentialist, on the contrary, finds it extremely embarrassing that God does not exist, for there disappears with him all possibility of finding any good a priori. You see what he's saying? He's saying, without God, then there's no basis for morality. There's no basis for moral right and wrong. Everything is relative. Everything rests on our shoulders to determine what is right or wrong. And he concludes, Dostoevsky once wrote, if God did not exist, everything would be permitted. And that for existentialism is the starting point. Man is in consequence forlorn, for he cannot find anything to depend on either within or outside of himself. In other words, man is free. Man is freedom. That is what I mean when I say that man is condemned to be free. Think about that phrase, condemned to be free. When we look to ourselves as the ultimate guide for life, then the weight, the pressure rests on our shoulders to direct our own lives, to determine our own morals, to, to figure out what life's meaning is all about. Incredible pressure that crushes many people. And so you can see how freedom on the one hand is very positive, and yet on the other hand, without God, throwing off all constraints, it's crushing. And this is really what David is wrestling with. On the one hand, he desires freedom. He desires to be free from God, hemming him in. He desires to flee from God's presence. And yet, on the other hand, he loses that hand that guides him. He finds himself bewildered as he gropes around in the darkness to try to figure out what is the purpose of life. And so you can see the dilemma that David is experiencing. And really, that's the kind of dilemma that we feel a lot of times. Intuitively, I think most people sense that God might be real. But the mere thought of acknowledging his reality has implications for our life. I remember talking to a guy a number of years ago really sharp guy. He was very agnostic. He had a ton of questions. So after our home church meeting, almost every single week for like two months, he would just pepper us with questions about Christianity. And we would be sitting there for an hour, hour and a half after home church, just working our way through his questions. And they were genuine questions. He was a thoughtful guy. So at the end of that two-month period, we had exhausted all of the questions he had, at least the major ones. And I said, well, if you feel like Maybe you're at a place where at least Christianity is plausible to you. I would suggest that you go home tonight and just call out to God. See if he's real. And he said, you know, I think I'm going to do that. So he shows up the next week and I follow up on him. I said, hey, so remember we talked last week. Did, did you ever do that? Did you ever call out to God? And he said, oh, I don't know. And finally, I asked him, I said, so what's holding you back? And he said, I just can't really put my finger on it because on the one hand, I feel like you have answered a lot of the questions that I have. And yet, on the other hand, there's this sense of reluctance to actually call out to him. And I said, look, I'm just, I'm just speculating here. I'm throwing out some ideas. But maybe it's not that you're afraid that God, if you call out to him, 
will fail to answer. Maybe the real concern you have is that if you call out to him, that he might speak. And you know that if he does, there are real implications for your life. I think a lot of people have apprehension to acknowledge God's existence because they know that that has real implications on the way they ought to live. Also, God's presence threatens to expose us. One of the things that's really interesting is, imagine if there was a thought teleprompter that just followed you around. You know what a, thought, you know what a teleprompter is? It's, it's that screen that is usually in front of like a person who's doing public speaking or a reporter and it kind of gives them their lines. Imagine there was a teleprompter that broadcast every single thought that popped into your mind. Every single thought. Think about that. Would you ever be able to hold down a job? <laughs> You're nearing the end of the day and your boss walks into your office and he says, hey, can you stay late tonight? And the thought teleprompter says, not unless you want me to kill you. <laughs> Think about trying to maintain relationships when you have a thought teleprompter just following you. You know, your spouse is like, do you like my haircut? <laughs> Hate it. Your girlfriend says, you think this dress makes me look fat? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, the reason why we're able to maintain relationships in large part is our ability to suppress our thoughts, right? It's that filter that stops the thought from going out of our mouth. And yet, God knows all of our thoughts. He knows everything that we do in secret. And that's amazing that God knows everything about us, and yet he still loves us. I was thinking about this example from John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Jesus has this really intense interaction with this woman who has had a really hard life, and you could tell because she is very reluctant and sort of hostile toward Jesus in this conversation they're having. And at one point, there's this turning point in the conversation where Jesus says, go get your husband. And you could tell she just was puzzled. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And he says, yeah. The man that you're living with is not your husband, and you've got five more that you've been with. And, you know, I think about how people in our culture today react to some of that, because, you know, an interaction like that would be regarded as shaming. Jesus was shaming this woman. And yet, one of the things that God does when he exposes us, he's not doing this to make us feel bad. He's not doing that to tear us down. A lot of times, he exposes problems in our lives so that we can draw near to him. And what happens in the narrative is that when she says, well, you know, I guess when the Messiah, the, the chosen one of God shows up, he's going to reveal everything. And he says, the one who you're speaking to is the Messiah. And at that point, she just drops her jug and runs into the town to tell all the people 
that she had met the chosen one. And so she came to faith because of that. You know, one of the things that's amazing is that when God's presence exposes us, we're really on the brink of either deeper intimacy or flight, right? We're, we're, right on, we're teetering right on the edge. And yet it's amazing that God, even though he knows all of the things that we've done, he knows all of the thoughts that we have, the jealousy, the hatred, the lust, the, the dark thoughts that are, that are swimming around in our minds, that despite all of that, God still loves us. That billions of years ago, before the world was even formed, God decided to choose you. He chose to send his only son to come and die for you so that you could have a relationship with him. I love how Paul expresses in Colossians 1 verse 22, he says, he brought you into this, his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. God knows your entire history. He knows all the things you've ever done, not only in your past, but the things that you are going to do. And yet he could declare that you are holy and blameless without a single fault simply because of what Jesus did for you. And that's one of the amazing things about God is that even though he knows all of our flaws, he knows all of our problems, he still loves us. You know, think about that. One of the reasons we hide from people, one of the reasons why we put up layers to keep people away is because we're afraid that if they find out who we really are, they will reject us. And yet God says, I know everything about you. I probably know you better than you know yourself. And yet, I still accept you. I still love you. Now, the third thing is that God's presence pushes us to the brink of flight or intimacy. In verse 13 and 14, he says, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. So David envisions himself in his mother's room and he sees God creating him, shaping his personality, implanting his drives and his desires, setting his level of intellect. And God has done that for you. He's shaped you into who you are. You know, we live in a culture today where people feel such, such low self-worth about themselves. People feel intense insecurities. They're constantly looking at other people and their giftings and their accomplishments. We look at other people and their personality and their charisma. And we often think, why am I not like this person? How come I don't have these things? Maybe if I had those things, then maybe God, maybe my life would be better. And yet, God says that I made you exactly the way I wanted you. You know, one of the things that I did in college was I studied art history. And one of the things that I really loved studying was Renaissance art. 
And of course, you know, there are the, the big four as they're known in the Renaissance. It's Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello, and Raphael. Today, we just refer to them as the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> and one of the things that really stood out about Raphael, among the other masters, was his composition. You know, composition describes your arrangement on a canvas. And one of the things that art critics talk about with Raphael's work was that he didn't stuff his canvas with lots and lots of figures, that he allowed his subject matter to breathe. And for example, um, <clears throat> in one of his famous works, The Triumph of Galatia, you see that there's this symmetry, you know, the angelic being pictured at the bottom corresponds with the one at the very top, and then the left and the right are mirrored. And so one of the things you see is that there's this beautiful arrangement in his work, and in the same way, God has arranged you exactly the way he wants. You know, there's a reason why you have deficiencies. There's a reason why you don't have all of the giftings and the, the same personality as other people around you. It's because God wants to put you in a diverse community of people. And he wants you to play your specific role in a very unique way. David says in verse 15 and 16, he says, You watch me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was even born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Think about that. God knows everything that you've ever done and what you will ever do. He knows how many days you have left. He says, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot even be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. You know, so many people in our culture just spend so much time thinking about themselves. We walk around in our self-absorbed state, completely unaware of other people and the impact of our actions or our thoughts. And what ends up inevitably happening is it's self-consuming. We're just sitting there thinking about ourselves constantly. And instead of making us actually feel better, it makes us feel incredibly worse. And yet, what's interesting is, David says, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. Think about that. God has numerous thoughts about you. They're so numerous that you can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand on a beach. Can you think of anybody else who thinks more about you than yourself? And yet God does. He thinks about you constantly. He loves you. And one of the amazing things that we experience when, when we allow that to just soak in is that we don't have to worry about ourselves so much anymore because we know that there is a God who loves us and his mind is constantly trained on thinking about us. Finally, in verse 23 and 24, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. David is at really at a point where, on the one hand, he realizes that God's presence is inescapable. 
He goes through this period where he realizes that it's a threat to his freedom and to being exposed for who he really is. But once he realizes that God understands and knows him so intimately and yet still accepts him, he moves toward God. He says, search me and know my heart. And really that connects with the thesis that he gives us in verse one. Oh Lord, you have examined my heart. You know everything about me. He says, test me and know my anxious thoughts. So he's inviting God into his life and to invite him into his anxious thoughts. So many people in our culture today struggle with anxiety about their lives. And if you have a relationship with God that's intimate, you can invite God into those thoughts. Psalm 19 verse 12 says, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? One of the things that often happens in our lives is that we are typically very blind to our issues. We all have blind spots. And one of the things that God is faithful to do as a process of spiritual growth is to reveal issues in our life. He says in verse 24, point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. And so David says, look, as I look inward, it confuses me. You ever feel that way? You're like, I think if I just think about myself more, maybe I'll just be able to understand what's wrong with me. And after a two-hour session, you're more confused than ever. You know, God doesn't really want you to have this sort of morose, guilt-ridden, just sad, somber relationship with him. The Christian life is one of victorious celebration. That God wants to have a relationship with us. That, we, that he wants to give us mercy and love, even though we don't deserve it. And so David realizes how confusing it is to, to look inward and to try to parse up all of his motives and thoughts. And he says, I'm just going to throw up my hands. I'm going to let God do that. Reveal to me if there's anything inside of me that offends you. Well, let's draw a few points of application. I think the first thing is you have a chance to meet someone who knows everything about you and yet still loves you. One of the biggest fears I think we feel is that if we're found out who, for who we really are, that people are going to reject us. It's one of the reasons why we put up this mask so that people will like us. We curate content we put on the internet so that we can get approval from people. That's why we work ex exceptionally hard at whatever we're doing because we want to, our, our peers and our colleagues to pat us on the back. And God says, I know everything about you, all of your flaws, all of your issues, and yet I still love you. Secondly, there's no refuge from God's presence, but there is refuge in his presence. I don't know if you feel this way, but I know before I met Christ, one of the things that really ate me up was this feeling that I had to basically steer my own ship. And I felt lost. I felt confused. 
And one of the things that really just revolutionized my thinking was, was coming to the conclusion that God actually has a plan and purpose for my life. That he's the one who gives me significance, not the things that I do, not the things that I try to take my identity from. And God wants to give you real purpose, meaning and direction in your life. And so it's a refuge to come into his presence. But the problem is there's an issue between you and God that we've done things that put us at odds with him, things that have offended him. But the good news is this, is that God loves us and wants to break down that barrier. He's gone so far as to send his own son, Jesus, to come and die for us to bridge that gap. So if you're here tonight and you sense that God is inviting you to have a relationship with him, I'd urge you to turn to him and to receive the forgiveness that comes freely through Jesus Christ. Finally, invite God to have an active role in your life. Some of us have a relationship with God, but we've put up walls. My suggestion is for you to move closer to him because he loves you, he knows you, and yet he still accepts you. Okay, there you have Psalm 139. Father, we thank you that you want to know us and that even though your knowledge of us is expansive, that not one of our thoughts goes unnoticed by you, that you still love us, that you still accept us. And even though we know that your love for us is unconditional, we know that your acceptance of us is not, that we ultimately need to come to a place where we realize that we have a problem with you and that we need Jesus' forgiveness and his acceptance in order to bridge that barrier that we have. And um, I pray for any, anybody here tonight who just maybe senses that uh, you're calling on them to let them into their lives, that they would have the courage to do that. And uh, we thank you for anybody who did that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.